This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, Episode 46, The Law of the Apple and the Tree. The last episode, we looked at Jacob's life as parents. We, we saw him as an example of how not to parent, and this episode is going to be very similar. We're going to look at him as a parent again and see an example of how not to behave. And I think that's really important because it's really difficult to evaluate a situation when you're in the thick of things. And if you're a parent, you're not able to see while you're parenting all of your flaws and the mistakes that you are making. On down the road, you'll look back and you'll see those. But while you're in the middle of things, it's going to be a lot harder to see. And that's that's true of all kinds of things. I've noticed that a lot of authors who write about their experiences growing up or the places that they were raised in a lot of them don't write their novels or their works in the place they're writing about. They'll move away, and then they'll write about it. Harper Lee is a prominent example, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the most famous novels, if not the most famous novel, about the South. She didn't write that from the South, where she grew up. She grew up in the South. I'm sure she had some ideas about it already, and then moved to Manhattan, and it was from New York that she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And I doubt she would have been able to see the problems that she dealt with as clearly if she had stayed put in that situation. It's just harder to see when you're in the middle of things. One of the most painful experiences that I had when I was a student at Fried Hardeman University and learning how to preach was watching myself preach on tape. Back then, we taped things. Now you record them. But that was a part of every preparation, delivery of sermons class, every speech class. Uh, Many of you who haven't been preaching students, you've taken a speech class where you've had to do this. The instructor will make you sit down and watch yourself preach or give a speech. And And it's really painful. You see yourself doing things you did not realize that you did. You hear yourself saying things, repeating phrases stuttering, stammering, saying uh all the time when you didn't realize that you were doing it. And it's all about perspective and distance and the importance of that. Now, you only get one shot at parenting. So how are you going to get that kind of perspective? Unlike writing, you can't parent from a distance. So watching somebody else make mistakes is the next best thing. And that's what we're going to do with Jacob. We're going to watch him so that we can get a bird's eye view of parenting. And unfortunately, we won't see a whole lot of successful things. We won't see him doing a lot of things right. We'll see him making a lot of mistakes, but that's instructive in itself. Now, you've heard this statement, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And there's a reason why that statement is repeated all the time. It's true. Some of you may not like to admit it, but you're a lot more like your parents than you would admit. It's just true. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We turn out to be a lot like our parents. One of the examples that I really like is of Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip. Schultz is probably the most famous comic, comic strip creator of all time. Somebody may surpass him one day, but right now... Even though it's been out of circulation for years, Peanuts is still probably the best-known comic strip ever. And 
I doubt Charles Schultz would have become the creator of Peanuts if it weren't for his parents. When he was growing up, his father enjoyed comic strips, and he would buy six newspapers every weekend, and he and his son would go through and read the comic strips together. That was something they did on the weekends. When Schultz was drafted to fight in World War II, his mother was dying of cancer and she died when he was overseas fighting in the war. One of the last things that she said to him is if they ever got a family dog, they should name him Snoopy. You think about the impact that his parents had on him without him even really knowing it. It's, it's really quite amazing. Our parents have a tremendous influence upon us. And Jacob's parents had, I mean, Jacob had a lot of influence on his children, namely his 12 sons. We're going to see two examples of that in this episode, and the first one is this. We see that he had a lot of influence over his son, the dreamer, over Joseph. Uh, By this point in in the story, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, has died, leaving him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph was not very popular with his brothers. There's several reasons for that. Uh, The first is that he was a tattletale. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, we read that Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Nobody likes a tattletale. Even teachers and parents who want to know about the mischief their kids are getting into, they don't want to hear about it from a tattletale. They just don't, because a lot of times tattletales have ulterior motives. They're not just altruistic people who are, you know, just wanting good to prevail over evil. They have their agenda they're trying to push, and that's why they're telling on people and trying to make them look bad. By making other people look bad, they make themselves look better. And also, if you don't want to raise a kid encouraging him to tattle on his peers, What's going to happen is he's going to grow up and become a person who sells out his peers, and he's not going to have the social skills that he needs to be a success in life. It can be really bad for somebody to learn to tattle on people. And so Joseph, the first reason his brothers didn't like him is he was a tattletale. Now, the second reason was his father's favoritism. This is well known. I'll read about it in Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now why was Joseph the, f- the favorite? Well, he was Rachel's firstborn, and we all know now how Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. He never really intended on marrying Leah. His father-in-law played a trick on him, and he wound up married to this older sister, Leah, when he really wanted Rachel. Later, he married Rachel, and they had a hard time having children, and eventually had Joseph and then Benjamin. That's one of the reasons. And Rachel was now gone. So you can imagine how much, how, how, um, Joseph became even more special to his father. He probably reminded him 
of Rachel. Joseph may have had some of Rachel's mannerisms. He may have looked a little bit like her. There was just something about him that reminded him of his, of his late wife. It also was his son of old age. Now, Jacob had made a lot of mistakes with his first ten children. Uh, he, he'd worked a lot. He maybe had not spent a whole lot of time with them. And it's possible that now that he's settled in Canaan, life has slowed down, his older sons are able to take care of the family business, and he's able to spend more time at home. And he's getting to know Joseph probably better than he got to know his older sons. And that would have an effect on his affection for Joseph also. His love for Joseph was famously symbolized in this gift of a robe of many colors, as the ESV translates it in verse 3. The Hebrew is really unclear about the nature of this garment. We've grown accustomed to calling it the coat of many colors, but commentators have puzzled over it for years. Maybe it was a multicolored garment. Another translation is a robe with long sleeves, and I found an interesting statement on that possibility by Charles Swindoll. He said, you can't work very well in a garment that has sleeves and extends all the way down to your ankles, especially if it's costly, if it's a costly, richly ornamented robe. It would be like sending a welder to a construction site wearing a full-length mink coat. In Joseph's day, the working garb was a short sleeveless tunic. This left the arms and legs free so that workers could easily maneuver and move about. As you can imagine, by giving Joseph this elaborate full-length coat, which was also a sign of nobility in that day, his father was boldly implying, you can wear this beautiful garment because you don't have to work like those brothers of yours, end quote. I think that's pretty good commentary on what's going on here. Who knows, whether it was a multicolored garment, a long-sleeved garment, or both, it was a clear sign that Jacob favored Joseph above his other brothers. There is a third reason why his brothers hated him, and it was his dreams. Like his father, Joseph had vivid, evocative dreams, and this kind of goes in the category of tattletales. Nobody likes tattletales, and nobody likes people who go on and on and on about their dreams. I had a tendency to do that as a kid and come to the breakfast table and I say, I had the weirdest dream last night. And even while my parents and my brothers were groaning, I, I just couldn't resist. I'd, I'd go into this dream, however boring and long it was, I'd tell every detail of it. And looking back, I realized that probably wasn't the best idea. But when you have those dreams, some people just can't resist telling them. And Joseph was one of them. Now, that was enough in itself that he was talking about his dreams but then the meaning of the dreams was an additional problem, and they were not hard to interpret. Moses says that the first dream made Joseph's brothers hate him even more. Verse 6, he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams 
and for his words. And his second dream was enough even to get a reaction out of his father. Verse 9 says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, these dreams may eventually come true. In in fact, we know that they will. But from what we've already seen about young Joseph and his position in the family, it wasn't time to make them public. So that's the first example of Jacob's influence over his son that I wanted to to share with you. He was the the dreamer, and he had at least one son who also was a dreamer. Now the second one, well, it's even worse. Jacob was a schemer. His name means deceiver. We're calling this series on the life of Jacob favored cheat. And he was the father of schemers. At Penuel, God gave Jacob a new name, but that didn't erase the influence that contaminated the character of his sons. When it came to scheming, they'd learned from the expert. And now we're going to see Jacob's sins come home to roost. Here's what happened. Joseph's brothers were pasturing their father's flock near Shechem, where Dinah had been raped, and Simeon and Levi carried out their vengeance and bloodshed, and that worried Jacob, so he sent Joseph to Shechem to check on them. This is verses 12 through 14. Now, when Joseph arrived, he was told that his brothers had moved the flock to Dothan, so he made his way to Dothan and found them there. And the minute his brothers saw him coming, they began to plot revenge. Here's verse 18. They saw him from afar... And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, interestingly, Reuben steps in. Verse 21, he hears it, and he rescued Joseph out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Reuben's idea was that he would rescue Joseph from their hand and restore him to his father and maybe save a little face because Reuben uh, had been doing some things that were not seen as very good gestures by his father. But when Joseph arrived... The brothers enacted their plan. Joseph came, and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Verse 25 says they sat down to eat. You can tell there were no guilty consciences here. They do this horrible thing, and they're about to do something even worse, and they're able to sit down and eat. Now, when my conscience is bothering me, or I'm worried about something, or I am anxious, the last thing on earth I want to do is eat. This detail was given here to show us how cruel and cold-hearted Jacob, uh, Joseph's brothers truly were. Reuben had evidently left the scene, 
And in his absence, Judah speaks up, and Judah takes the lead of the brothers, and he has a plan. Looking up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then in verse 26, Judah speaks, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And Moses says that his brothers listen to him. And then the brothers practice the family tradition. They come up with a clever plan to explain Joseph's disappearance. They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it, and Jacob said, This is my son's robe. And it was Jacob who drew the conclusion that an animal, no doubt, had torn him to pieces. So they didn't lie exactly. They only misrepresented the truth. You see how similar they are to their father, Jacob? Did they inherit this? Is this nature or nurture? I think that Jacob's influence, years of scheming, had now trickled down into his son's and he was reaping what he sowed. So, those are two ways in which Jacob's sons were like his father. In Joseph's case, he was a dreamer. In the case of the others, they were schemers. And with all of that out there, I want to draw three observations regarding parental influence. Here's here's the first one. Parents, what we do when our children are young will have a tremendous impact upon their lives. You see... Children are like clay. When clay is fresh and it's new, it can be shaped into whatever form the the potter desires. But as clay ages, it hardens. And the same is true with children. When they're young and impressionable, we even use that, that adjective impressionable, they can be molded and shaped more easily than when they grow older. You, you can't wait until they're teenagers to start teaching them right from wrong. You have to start start very early on. And a parent may repent of not being the kind of parent he should have been when his children were young. But the damage may be already done. It may be too late to make any difference in his children's life. There's no better example of this in the Bible, I think, than evil King Manasseh, a king of Israel, the northern kingdom after the division of the kingdoms. Manasseh was an idol worshiper. He was the worst kind of idol worshiper. He even worshipped some of the Canaanite gods that demanded human sacrifice. And the Bible says that on at least one occasion, he burned his son as an offering to these false gods. He was one of the worst kings ever to lead Israel. He led his people astray to do more evil, the Bible says, than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. 2 Kings 21 verse 9. The Bible says he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. That's verse 16. Tradition says it was Manasseh who killed Isaiah the prophet by sawing him in two. 
That's not a biblical tradition exactly, but in Hebrews 11 you read that some of God's servants were killed in that torturous way, and maybe Manasseh, maybe that was a reference to something Manasseh had done to Isaiah the prophet. He was certainly capable of that kind of thing, and because of his disobedience, he was captured by the king of Assyria, and he was brought in chains to Babylon. You find a very interesting note, I guess you would say, on the life of Manasseh in 2 Chronicles that you don't read in 2 Kings. This is in 2 Chronicles 33. It says that this evil king, who doesn't seem um, salvageable, if I can put it that way, from 2 Kings, this evil king Manasseh was captured with hooks by... Assyria. Captured kings were often really abused in those days, especially by the Assyrians, and they would do things like push hooks through the cartilage in their nose or through their lips or their jaws and then use those hooks to lead them about like they were cattle or something. And in his distress, with these hooks in his face, Manasseh humbled himself greatly before God and prayed for deliverance. And 2 Chronicles says that God, moved by his prayer, restored him somehow to his throne. We don't get any details on that, just that he was restored to his throne. And upon his return, Manasseh, this man who sacrificed children to false gods, he repented, he removed the idols, he restored the temple, he commanded the people to render pure worship to God. He changed his heart, and... His change of heart may have saved his soul. However, it did a little more than that. He had a son, and his son became king, and that son's name was Ammon. And 2 Chronicles 33, 23 says, Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself, but this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. A few decades later, The Babylonians destroyed Judah with Jerusalem and its temple to punish God's people for their sins. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, the comment on that by the writer of 2 Kings is very telling. Here's what he says in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. For the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. So even though Manasseh repented, still the city, the people of God were destroyed because of his influence. His influence seems to have ruined the royal family. He may have repented, but his children never recovered from the damage he did early in his reign. I've heard parents say, Why doesn't the Lord give us children in our old age when we know what we're doing? I sometimes wish that he would, but nature just doesn't work that way. We get them when we're young. And we can't wait until our kids are teenagers to start trying to raise them. If we don't start when they're young, when they're impressionable, before long it'll be too late to turn them around. That's the first observation. The second one is this. God will hold us accountable for the way that we raise our children. 
There's a good example in 1 Samuel of a judge named Eli, the old judge who trained Samuel. Samuel was not Eli's son. Eli had sons. They were not anywhere near as commendable as Samuel. And at one point, Samuel received a message from the Lord that Eli would be punished for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. God commands parents to raise their children right. In Proverbs, parents are commanded, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, verse 6. And in Ephesians 6, verse 4, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The question is this, and this is a question you can ask of any commandment that you find in the Bible. Would God give parents a commandment that is impossible to fulfill? I think if we know the nature of God as merciful and loving and caring and righteous, we would have to say, absolutely not. God's not going to give parents a commandment that's impossible to fulfill. So, if he tells us to raise our children up in the Lord, well, we must be able to do that. Which leads me to the third observation, a word of encouragement to parents who feel like failures, and that is, our children will make their own choices when they become adults. It may be true that God will hold parents accountable for the way they raise their children. That's not the same thing as saying He will hold them accountable for the choices their children make in adulthood. That's an entirely different thing. And I hear a lot of parents of adult children beat themselves up with Proverbs 22.6, the verse I just quoted a minute ago that says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's important to remember that when you're reading the book of Proverbs, you're reading a collection of inspired instruction that states what is generally true, but there are exceptions to every rule, and there are exceptions to this rule. There have to be, because I have known a lot of great parents whose children whose children went astray when they became adults. It has to be so, because your parents' instruction is not going to force you, when you're old, to make the right decisions. You have to make your own decisions. All of us do. When we become adults. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 should settle this question. It symbolizes our Heavenly Father as a father with two sons. So if this father represents our Heavenly Father, we assume he's done everything possible that he can to raise them in the right way. And yet both of them are miserable sinners. One while he's in the far country and the other who, while he's at home with his father. Who was at fault? Does anybody read the parable of the prodigal son and walk away from that thinking, that father made a mess out of his household? Absolutely not. If you come to that conclusion, you've misread the parable. That's not at all what it means. It's supposed to highlight the value of a parent's love and his hope and his patience, his not giving up on his sons, his careful instruction of them, even when they do depart in their adulthood. The Lord himself said of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, 
but they have rebelled against me. But no one lays the blame of Israel's sin and apostasy at the feet of the Lord. So why would we think in every case it's the parents' fault that children go astray? Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it is. But we also need to remember that our children are going to make their own choices. They must make their own choices. And many of them will choose wrong. Our role as parents is to train children to make good decisions and put God first in their lives. And that's all that we can do. We can prepare them, but we can't live their lives for them. Now, if you're a parent, pay attention to Jacob's mistakes. His life is a rare glimpse at common mistakes that you may be making in your own home. Are you a passive parent? Are you playing favorites? Are you setting a bad example? Well, if you still have a chance to do something about it, change before it's too late. And if your children are grown and they're faithful children, thank God for that. You're blessed more than you than you know. And if your children are grown and they've strayed, don't give up on them. But don't beat yourself up either, thinking that everything is your fault. When our children grow up, they're going to make their own decisions. They have to. Each one of us gives account of himself to God. There's more about Joseph, more about Jacob. We're closing in on the end of the story, but there's still a lot of great things yet to be seen. So stay tuned to Wide Margins.